One of my favorite preachers, Josh Ross, is with us today. Josh and his wife, Casey, uh, and, and kids, Truett and Noah, are here. And uh, they serve in Memphis, Tennessee, at the Sycamore View Church of Christ. But they love the city of Memphis. And that's one thing I know you'll hear out of Josh this morning. It gives me an infectious desire to love our city in the same way that they're seeking to do that at Sycamore View. Uh, one story I want to tell and I want to tell this story because uh, it lets you know more about me and it lets you know more about Josh, but also because it lets you know the power of words. Uh, when I was a sophomore in high school, Josh came to Highland Oaks where I was in the youth group in Dallas, and uh, he was our, our youth intern that summer. And then Casey came the next summer with Josh. And so two summers, Josh was there in some very formative years in my life. And it was one uh, evening at camp that Josh took me aside. I was a leader in the youth group at the time, but Josh saw more in me than I was living out in my discipleship. And it was Josh's words when he said to me, I see more in you as he walked beside me and challenged me to greater levels of seeking the Lord that led me on a path of discipleship that's where I am today. And if it weren't for Josh Ross, I don't believe I'd be preaching today because Josh saw something and walked with me and continued to call that out. I want to share that story because I want you to know the power of words that you have in your own life. That there are people in our youth group, there are people that are young adults, there are people that are 80 years of age that need your word of encouragement in their lives for them to do what God has called them to do, and they don't see it until you call it out. So Josh, I want to call you to the stage right now, and I want to pray over Josh for the word that God's going to speak through him today, uh, but I'm excited to, to listen with you this morning to whatever word God's going to bring through his mouth today. God, I, I thank you for your servant, Josh, and I thank you for the ways that he has uh, called out life in me for the ways you've spoken through him before and you, you want to speak to him again today. So God, I pray you'd pour through him the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our lives and that we might love this city even better than we did when we came in. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you so much, Colin. Um, I remember that our first summer together and seeing something special in you and to see where you are now, your family, um, Thank you for inviting me today. I, I told you in first, uh, first service, Colin and Holly, both uh, I believe in you. I'm so grateful for you and to see both of you develop into people who just love the Lord. You're great leaders. I hope this church, I hope you know how blessed you are to have them uh, here with you. Uh, it's good for our family. We have family here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, so we were hanging out uh, for Thanksgiving, and uh, it's an honor to be on the stage where Colin gets to uh, stand up and preach and deliver a word almost every week. Uh, I want you to open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Uh, I'm going to walk us through this book this morning. How many of you would say Ephesians is in your top three, maybe top five favorite books in the Bible? Can I see just a show of hands? We got some people here. Uh, Anytime I ask people, what are your favorite books in the Bible? Usually Ephesians comes up uh, in people's top three, maybe top five. Every once in a while, there'll be a person who says, well, I like all 66 books the same. And I'm like, you lie, you know, Uh, you don't. Uh, right in the middle of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul prays a prayer over the church of Ephesus. And he lets them know what posture he prays in, and he lets them know what he prays. And I think it's something you should consider this week, that if you shoot a message to someone or you let someone know you are praying for them, sometimes it's good to let people know exactly what you're praying. If there's a verse you're declaring over someone, a truth of God you're praying and speaking over them, a a characteristic of the nature of God that you're claiming over someone's life, sometimes it's good not just to let someone know you're praying, but exactly what you were praying. Uh, Casey and I, uh, my wife, we have two boys, nine and seven, and uh, we want to teach them what it means to cry out to God and, and just voice their lives 
to the Lord. So we, uh, in efforts trying to teach them how to intercede in, in prayer, it's really fun listening to them pray sometimes. There are times where my boys will pray at the dinner table, like many of you have heard prayers before, and it'll basically be, you know, God, this food's really hot, and you want us to eat the food right now, so in the Jesus' name, amen, let us eat. You know, one of those prayers. Uh, but the other day, my uh, one of my sons was uh, praying at, at dinner, and uh, he said, God, uh, I think Satan may like football, and sometimes Satan's on his own one-yard line, and he thinks he's good, but then you sack him for a safety, which means you get the ball back. And then you score, and then you score again, and you score again, and you score again until you usher in the new heavens and the new earth. In Jesus' name, amen. And that was his prayer, which shows you a few things about our family. I mean, there's some new heavens and new earth theology, and there's also a deep love for the sport of football. But it also, I mean, we want to teach our kids what it means to claim victory in Jesus. So my wife was speaking somewhere in East Tennessee uh, back in August, and it was a week that we had a tragic death in the life of our church. A 21-year-old named Tamarie had a heat stroke uh, working, fell and hit his head. By the time he got to the hospital, his body was already at 107 degrees. And he lived for three more days. And the night before he died, in case he was out of town, so it was just me and my two boys, Noah and Truett, and we were praying in the room. And a lot of times we'll assign each person, like, here's what I want you to pray over, and Will you pray over mom as she speaks this weekend, and you pray over this? And I was going to pray over Tamaria, but my boys said they wanted to. So uh, as they prayed over Tamaria, their prayer went something like this. Dear God, sometimes it feels like Satan jumps on our back and won't let go. And in the prayer, my boys were kind of like shaking, like they were trying to like shake Satan off. Have you ever had someone jump on your back and, you know, they just jump on and it's like you can't get them off. And you're trying to like throw them on a couch and it won't happen. So in their prayer, it's not that they were being comical or funny. It was sometimes it's like Satan jumps on our back and we just can't shake him. You ever felt like that in your life? And as they were praying, they said, God... Satan has jumped onto Marie's back. And when Satan jumps on our back, he wants to inject poison in us from the head to our toes. Sometimes my boys pray with this depth that I I don't know where they get it from. I think it's just the Spirit of God working in their lives. That sometimes it's like Satan wants to inject this poison from our head to our toe. But just as Satan thinks he wins, you're the one that jumps on his back. And you destroy him forever. And will you do that for Tamaria? In the name of Jesus, amen. Sometimes it's really good for us to hear what we're praying over one another. And this is what Paul wanted for this church in Ephesus. A church that he dearly loved. That he didn't just want them to know that he was praying for them, but how he was praying. And the prayer he had offered up in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, was a prayer for them to be strengthened in their inner being with power. So that they'll know the depth of God's love. So that they can learn to live with this anticipation of the movement of God. So that they can know that God can do more than they could ever ask or imagine. The prayer Paul prayed over the church in Ephesus wasn't a prayer for them to be safe or to hold on tight to the very end. It was a prayer for them to be radically changed by the Spirit of God so they could enter into this city that was full of so much evil to be the presence of light and life in a city of darkness. So he spends three chapters doing that, um, and it was a way to prepare them to live. A few years ago, I was traveling, uh, I was uh, speaking at a church, uh, this event in Florida, and the person who was in charge of getting me to the airport, uh, 
had the wrong directions, got mixed up. He dropped me off at the airport. I had 30 minutes to go through security from curb to get all the way to, uh, to my plane. So I'm running through security as fast as I could. You get in line, so it's not like there's much you could do. And while I was standing in line, I could tell there was someone famous who had walked in the airport uh, because people were turning around and they're pulling their cell phones out and they're taking pictures and uh, they're, they're screaming at this guy. It was Hulk Hogan, the wrestler. Hulk Hogan comes in with his girlfriend, I think girlfriend at the time, all right? And he has dark shades on, and people are yelling, and people are screaming out, hey, brother, you know, just like some of you would do if you saw Hogan somewhere. But I, I was running late, so I didn't have time to turn around and take pictures or go try to say hi. So I went through security. I had to go to the restroom, ran into the restroom. I ran out, and there was no one else in line for my flight. So I took off as fast as I could. I thought I was going to miss my plane handed the lady my ticket, and then I got onto the tarmac where I saw this long line of people, so I knew I had not missed my flight. And then out of like my peripheral vision, I could see someone coming up behind me, and it was Hulk Hogan, which meant I'm going to be standing in line with this guy for a few minutes. So I started thinking to myself, <laughs> I was like, you know, if, if you're ever around famous people, if you want to talk to them, act like you've been here before, like don't freak out. Like, don't turn into an 11-year-old where now I'm the one who's asking to take pictures. I was like, just play it cool, because no one else in line was playing it cool, all right? So um, I was looking in front. I still hadn't even made eye contact with him. He had his shades on. He was looking down. You could tell he didn't want to interact with people. And I just leaned back as all these people were taking pictures, and I said, hey, dude, are these people taking pictures of you or me? And when I did that, Hulk Hogan started laughing at me, all right? which I could care less if you think I'm funny this morning. I don't care if my wife or kids think I'm funny again for the rest of my life. Hulk Hogan thinks I'm funny, all right? And that means something to me that I will take to my grave. So Hogan laughed at me, and then he kind of pulled his shades down a little bit, and he said, man, uh, he, he struck up a conversation with me. He said, where are you from? I said, my wife and I grew up the first 27 years of our lives. We lived in Texas, but a few years ago, we took a job in Memphis, so we relocated. And then we started talking about Memphis. He wanted to talk about Memphis food and Memphis barbecue and Memphis culture. And he said, man, I was wrestling in the city of Memphis before you were born. I said, I was, I was born in 1980. He said, I was wrestling there in 1978. And then he said this. He said, uh, he said I, I just got a question, man. Why would, why would two people born and raised in the state of Texas leave Texas to move to a place like Memphis? And I didn't really like the way he said it. All right, because Casey and I, I mean, we were born and raised in Texas. We, we love Texas. I love the Dallas-Fort Worth area. But we have fallen in love with the city of Memphis. We love the culture, the beauty, the history. We love the challenges. And we're fully aware of the challenges our city faces and the reputation that's often placed on Memphis. as a city that, with a lot of violent crime and racial tension that's uh, more intense than in most places. We're fully aware of the challenges we face, but we, we love being there, and we love our city. We talk good about Memphis, and when people talk bad about Memphis, my nonviolent tendencies begin to break down. Like, I need people to move outside of my three- to four-foot area because I may cause harm. And now I decided to let Hogan, I was going to give him a little grace this day, all right? So when Hogan, just the way he said it was like, why would you leave a place like that for Memphis? I said, uh, well, man, when it comes down to it, my wife and I are followers of Jesus. And a few years ago, we decided that we wanted to run into a fight and that many people write off the city of Memphis as a place that's corrupt and lost. And we just decided that that sounds like a place where the power of the resurrection of Jesus may break out. And if so, we want to be in on it. And Hogan looked at me, pointed at me, and when he did, I flinched because his finger could knock my head off, right? <clears throat> and he said, Man, that's really cool. Before we got on the plane, I just said, 
we feel like Memphis is a city worth fighting for. And that was the end of our conversation because he went to first class and I went to the other side of the plane. But I sat down for the next hour and a half on that flight and I reflected on the confession I just made to Hulk Hogan. I just told him that I believe that Memphis is a city worth fighting for, that the lost people of Memphis are worth fighting for, that the injustices in Memphis are worth fighting for. For the next hour and a half, I started reflecting on the actions of my life. Do my actions line up to the confession I just made to him? Like, do we believe that whatever context God has placed us in is a place worth engaging uh, and fighting for? So let me show you how this works in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 14. Uh, <clears throat> I had early service do that. I know when my wife teaches the book of Ephesians, she has all the, the people in the room pull out a pen and circle verbs and circle uh, descriptions of what it is in this passage what it says about who you are and what God thinks about you. So I encourage you to do that if you write in your Bibles or maybe you have a phone or a tablet out. Highlight what it is this says about your identity and who you are in God. Beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Just as He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before Him in love, He destined us for adoption as His children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace that He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace that He lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, He has made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure that He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to gather up all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In Christ we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of Him, who accomplishes all things according to His counsel and will, so that we who were the first to set our hope on Christ might live for the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in Him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. And this is the pledge of our inheritance for redemption as God's own people to the praise of His glory. And for the reading of the word, the church said, Amen. Do you know that's one long sentence in the Greek? It's the longest sentence in your Bible. In the Greek, there are no commas and there are no periods. It's like Paul started talking about the goodness of God and all Jesus has accomplished. And once he started talking about it, he couldn't stop. Do you know those people in your life who are like one big run-on sentence just waiting to happen? You know? Like they start telling a story and they never stop. There are no periods. It's just one long run-on sentence. And, and that's what it's like for Paul. It's just this long run-on sentence. It's, I could see someone as a scribe who's sitting there and Paul's speaking and someone's writing it down and Paul's just going on and on about how great God is. And he couldn't stop. And the person's probably trying to write saying, Duke, can you take a breath? Just chill for a moment so I can catch up with you. Um, a few years ago, when my boys were five and three, my wife was at a neighborhood Bible study, and I was putting them down for the night, and it was a week that I was preaching through Ephesians uh, in our church. And before they went to bed, my boys wanted to uh, sing some songs. And they said, Dad, tonight we don't want to sing songs we know. We want to make up songs. Now, they were five and three, so it's not like they could rhyme or flow very well. But what they did is one of them had an air guitar, and the other had just one of those little kid guitars. And they stood in the room. And what they would do is uh, they wanted to write a song about God. So they just wanted to, what they did is they would like make a statement about the character of God or something about God, and then they would build on it. 
So it was a song that kind of went something like this. It was like, God, you're the one who created. And then there would be a pause. Uh, and because you created, you love what you created. And because you loved, you sent Jesus. It was just, and then they would repeat those words. It got seven minutes long and the song was still going. Uh, and I was like, do I step in at this moment and be like, dudes, it's time to like go brush teeth and go to bed. You've got to stop the song because sometimes my boys are, they'll look at me and be like, yeah, some preacher you are who loved Jesus. You won't even let us sing a song about God. So I just let it keep going and it just kept going. It was a statement about God with a statement that followed that and then they would repeat it. <clears throat> I'm not, this is not an exaggeration at all. It got to minute 23 and the song was still going. And finally, we were able to bring it to a close in a way that kind of seemed to make sense. And I remember I got him down that night, and I, I started reflecting on what my boys had just taught me because God was opening me up to what your boys just did for you is what happens in Ephesians 1, that there is a difference between a run-on sentence and run-on praise. And what my boys showed me that night and what Paul does in Ephesians 1, it's not just a run-on sentence, it's run-on praise. Maybe you've been at a time in your life or you have a celebrate recovery here at your church. It's in one of those meetings that someone starts talking about how God has broken the chains off of their life. He has set them free and they start talking about it and they just can't stop about all that Jesus has accomplished through death, burial, and resurrection and through the way he sets people free. So Paul starts out Ephesians that way. For the first three chapters of Ephesians, if you're taking notes, write this down. This could be some quiz you could ask somebody and Bible trivia one day. The first three chapters of Ephesians, there are no commands, no imperatives. For the first three chapters of Ephesians, the first half of the book, it's all about identity. It's who you are in God. It's who the church is. That Here's who you are in God. Here's what Jesus has accomplished for you. Here's how God is bringing together Jews and Gentiles for the praise of his glory. Here's what it means to be the church that lives with, the, with roots that are established in him, who are being strengthened together. So the first three chapters, no commands, uh, no imperatives. It's all about identity. And then the next three chapters, the second half of Ephesians, you have over 35 commands. So for Paul, he's writing to these people, and it's like what Paul is doing is, hey, once we establish who we are in God and what God has done for us and what God is doing in and through the church, now we can talk about what it means to be God's people in the world. And if you remember how Ephesians goes, it's not until chapter 6 that Paul talks about the armor of God, the helmet of salvation, belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness. And he, he talks about the armor. And there's this armor you put on. And the way Paul talks about it throughout the book of Ephesians is there's this identity that's rooted in God. And there's this armor you put on because we're in a fight. But it's not armor that you put on so that you go sit in a quiet place in your house hoping that no one from the outside comes and gets you. It's armor you put on because as the church, we are called to march out into the world. Not just to stay in a safe place from the world. We're not called to disengage from the world, but to engage the world. And for Paul, it's not a matter of if you go into the city of Ephesus to make a difference. It's what you wear while you do. If you read through the book of Ephesians and it's the, it's the city of Ephesus. It's one of the most immoral cities in the first century world. And one thing God started really teaching me a few years ago as I was asking God to teach us to love Memphis with greater passion is that if you want to, do you know what they call, do you know what they call the most evil, immoral cities in the first century world? Do you know what we call them? We call them the books, the names of the, the books of the New Testament. Ephesus and Romans and 
Corinth. And these are the worst places. These are the most evil places. The city's full of darkness. Uh, in fact, there are, there are seven wonders of the world that are like the current wonders of the world. There were seven wonders of the world that were the ancient ones. The seven wonders of the world today, and I have a few pictures. Can we just show some of these? Uh, how many of you saw this in the Olympics, right, down in Brazil? Uh, the, uh, Christ the Redeemer. This is the, the Great Wall of China. Um, just a few more wonders of the world. You have the Colosseum in Rome. You have uh, Machu Picchu and uh, the seven wonders of the world. Just Krispy Kreme donuts. I mean, you know what these are, right? Like you've been quizzed on these in school before. In the ancient world, 2,000 years ago, there were the wonders of the world there too. And a couple of them were in the city of Ephesus. And if you go to the next one, we have this. And skip, go to that, the last one, if you will. And of course, these aren't pictures. We didn't have cameras back then, right? There were paintings and things like that. But there were these massive temples that almost anywhere you were in the city of Ephesus, you could see it. People tell us that the city of Ephesus 2,000 years ago was a city of about 250,000 people. There were a lot of folks who were there. Over two dozen pagan temples with temple prostitution and all of them. You had a city that was full of witchcraft and magic. If you remember Acts 18 and 19, when the church started in Ephesus, they, they started burning magic books, millions of dollars worth in today's money. It's this city full of so much immorality, so much uh, power people were trying to tap into for witchcraft and magic. And it's why Paul talks so much about the word power in the book of Ephesus. Is he wanted these people to know the power you have been taught isn't real power. There's this power that God has placed inside believers that is power to bring us to life and to bring cities to life. Not one time in the book of Ephesians does Paul say anything that comes close to this. Hey, if you love Jesus, get out of this city right now. And not one time does Paul allude to, hey, for the sake of your family, get out of Ephesus and go to Jerusalem or Judea or somewhere else. Instead, what he did is he taught this church to seek after the heart of God in a way that they have this core that is being strengthened. And it was for the sake of the city. You have historians that tell us decades after Jesus ascended and the church began, the church was launched. You have historians that say that Ephesus, the church in Ephesus grew to tens of thousands of people. And it started with 12 in Acts 19 who caught hold of the fire of God. Uh, so a few years ago in Memphis... From the moment we moved there eight and a half years ago, we started praying that God would teach us to love our city the way He loves the city. We started praying that God would break our hearts for the things that breaks His heart. You start praying these prayers and God can start rocking your world, right? You got to be real careful some of the things you ask for. And it was a few years ago, um, in fact, five and a half years ago, my family, we sold our home in the suburbs of, of Memphis and we believe people need a, we need Christians all over our cities and neighborhoods, suburbs, everywhere. We need people living for God in all of them. But for us, we felt this calling of God to sell our home and to move into a more impoverished, uh, more diverse, multicultural, a a poor urban setting. Uh, So we sold our home in a time where most people didn't need to try to sell a home. And we joined in this great adventure with God. Um, So we moved into the city trying to, to learn how to love neighbors in what many would call the hood or the inner city or something like that. We choose to use other names for our for the neighborhood where we've been called to love. And we quickly found out that there are people in our community, in our neighborhood, who have a deeper love for Jesus than we've ever had. We have quickly found out there are people in our neighborhood who take better care of us and we take care of them. 
uh, and it was about four years ago, that I just hit this spot where I was being pulled in so many different directions that I didn't feel like I was, I was able to be a faithful neighbor on the street where I live, to love those on my very own street. After all, Jesus did say, love your neighbor as yourself, right? Uh, and I remember having this prayer time on this Wednesday night, and it was the month of December, because I remember this because it was freezing cold outside in Memphis. And I had this prayer time where over an hour with God, my prayer was, God, I don't feel like I'm being a better neighbor. Teach me what it means to be a more faithful neighbor. If it means having 30 minutes a week where I'm outside, taking more walks so I can engage with people because there's a lot of foot traffic in our neighborhood. Just teach me what it means to be a better neighbor. I drove home that night about 8.30 after church. I pulled into my driveway and my neighbor, Caddy Corner from her house, a woman in her 70s, came running out, screaming, hands in the air, yelling for help. And I didn't know what she needed, and I couldn't calm her down to hear. I didn't know if her house had been broken into, if someone had been shot, like, was there someone have a heart attack, what had happened? And she came running over, and she said, you've got to help, you've got to help. There's a mouse in my sink, and I need you to help me. I was like, I didn't go to school to learn how to help mice. I mean, there are other things I could provide, but you may need to call someone else. And she's like, no, I need you to help me. I said, ma'am, hang on one second. Let me try to think up a plan, a strategy here. And she's like, boy, we ain't got time for no strategy. I need you to go get my mouse. This is a woman who could probably kill me with a magazine or a flip-flop, all right? But when it came to a mouse, she was freaking out. So I said, well, ma'am, let me see what I'm dealing with here. Uh, I didn't know if she was talking about like a mouse or like a mouse, you know, that she was kind of confusing rats with mice or whatever. So I I said, "Let let me just see what I'm dealing with. And I looked in her sink. And it was a tiny little mouse who was more scared of me than I was of him. But I'm not just going to reach in with my bare hand, you know, and, and, and grab it and go set it free or whatever. So I was trying to think through, like, what am I going to do? Because it's grandma in the house who had a daughter and also had a granddaughter. And they said, we're going to go to the back room and you let us know when this thing is solved. So I'm trying to think through options in my head. And option number one was, uh, let me just kind of push this thing down the garbage disposal and I'm thinking through options, all right? Don't judge me in this moment, okay? I was like, man, let me just take the quick route. You know, get rid of him quick. But the the garbage disposal was on the other side of the sink. Uh, Option two was let me just set a mousetrap, place it in there, wait until I hear a snap, this problem will be over with. And option three was let me just see if there's a way where I could go setting free somewhere out in the woods or in the neighborhood and, and, and let it continue to live. All right, let me see a show of hands, all right? You, you laugh at me, and some of you are judging me. How many of you would do option number one and just flush it down the garbage disposal if that was an option, all right? We got a few. How many of you would have done the mousetrap idea, set the mousetrap, place it in there? Anybody? Uh, how many of you would have tried to set it free? Let me see that, okay? Man, way too many kind people in Allen, Texas, all right? Uh, how many of you didn't vote? Let me see a show of hands. Anybody? How many of you didn't raise a hand because you were taught to never lift a hand in a worship service? Do we got any of those in here? All right. Just joking on that one. Okay. I decided setting free. So I took an oven mitt and I cupped him. But when I did, he started running up my arm. All right. This scream came out of my body that I did not even know lived inside of this man. All right. It freaked grandma out. I mean, she's like peeking out the door. What's wrong? And I'm like, it's fine. So then I got another oven mitt, cupped him ran all the way, but then I got to the door and realized I can't open the door. So grandma had to come out, open the door. I went, I set him free. And for the, for the next few months, they, anytime they saw me, they called me the hero of the neighborhood. I, I was the hero. I was the mouse getter, all right? 
And I went home that night, and I was like, you know, I, I don't know if God like did this whole mouse in the sink to teach me what it means to be a better neighbor, but I started reflecting on the prayer I prayed and the little things we do to make ourselves available, to engage neighbors, to show that we love them and that we are for them. Uh, right before I moved to Memphis, I was preaching at a church in Houston, and it was a church that was surrounded by about six low-income apartment complexes. Now, I think it's good for me to clarify, just because it's a low-income apartment complex doesn't mean it's a crime-ridden place. Well, where we were, it was. And what we had done for years at this church is we had thrown barbecues for our community where we would hand out flyers that we would have this day where we were, we were providing free barbecue, free drinks, sodas, free fun for the kids, music. And we would send out these flyers and we would knock doors and we would hang banners and invite people to come. And then it would become the, it would come the day of the, the big community barbecue. Hardly anyone would show up. And the church was getting really discouraged about this. So I remember one day I was in an elders meeting and we were sitting there talking about like, do we need to do this next year? And I said, hey, next year, here's just an idea. What if we took the barbecue to the apartments instead of asking the people from the apartments to come to our church? And the four elders in the room sat there and they're like, man, it sounds like something Jesus may do. And what we began to learn is that the church is at its best when it gives up home field advantage. After all, in the book of Ephesians, it talks a lot about saints. And the saints, just they don't just march in, the saints march out. So we came up with this idea. Let's go throw a barbecue in the courtyard of this apartment complex across the street. So I went and I talked to the manager and I said, ma'am, here's what we would like to do. We would like to bring some barbecue pits over here and grill some hot dogs and hamburgers and have some drinks and hang out for a couple of hours, and I was expecting her to push back and to ask, like, what's your agenda, and are you handing out tracts, and what's going on? And she, she quickly responded, and she just said, hey, I think it's a great idea. In fact, I'll provide the sodas for you. She said, but I have one request. Saturday night to Sunday night's the heaviest drinking time for our uh, residents here, so could you come any other time, because it can get a little crazy. And I thought about that for a few minutes, and I thought, man, we were at a church, and maybe this one's fairly similar. We have people who drove from a 45-minute radius all around the church, and Sundays were a big day for us. I said, ma'am, I hear what you're saying, but if it's okay with you, we're going to go ahead and do it on a Sunday afternoon, and if people are bringing a lot of those kind of cold beverages, we'll trust our people to make responsible decisions, and if one of our elders puts down seven, eight, or nine of them, then we'll pull him aside and have a conversation about moderation, all right? <clears throat> So we started working our church and teaching our church and coaching them, equipping them. And that, Hey, in two weeks, we're having this barbecue. And we made two rules, only two. Rule number one for our church was, if you want to go to this event and hang out with church people, we would much rather you go to Chili's, IHOP, Denny's, have a gathering at your house. So we're not doing this barbecue to hang out with church people. And rule number two is if you bring a lawn chair for yourself, you have to bring a lawn chair for a neighbor. So if you have a husband and wife and you're bringing two, you need to bring four so a neighbor can sit with you. Now, the church where I was preaching was a church where almost everyone, the majority of people in the church were over the age of 60, and they were white, and were going into an apartment complex that day where almost everyone was under the age of 45 and 100% African American or Latino. And we started filing into this courtyard of this apartment complex on a Sunday afternoon. And people are peeking out of their blinds. And I just guarantee they had never seen more gray-headed white people in their entire lives. 
And it was like, if you've seen the movie Field of Dreams, you know, where people are coming out of the corners, like these old white people just coming from all these hallways and entryways uh, out into that courtyard. And, and we gathered and we started grilling and you could smell hot dogs and hamburgers. And we had all these sodas and hardly anyone was coming out. And you could see people peeking out their blinds. And a few minutes later, they're opening the doors and you can see people just looking through cracks. And then a few minutes later, people were standing out on their porch. And then an hour later, it was like the kingdom of God fell. Hundreds of people gathered all over this courtyard where conversations were happening everywhere. And you had people who couldn't speak Spanish, who were somehow conversing with people who could only speak English. And for two hours, it was like the kingdom of God came. And that little corner of the neighborhood began to change because the next Sunday when we showed up for church and there was that lady who we always saw pushing the shopping basket to go do laundry for her family was no longer just the lady pushing a basket. She was a lady with a name and we knew the names of her children. And I was speaking at an event in Houston last year where a lady from that church came up and she said, Josh, I know it's been 10 years. We still do that barbecue every year and our neighborhood is changing because of it. And it was one of the events that taught me and taught our church. And we're at our best when we give up home field advantage. Where beautiful, powerful things happen when the church comes together like what we're doing this morning. But this is to prepare us to engage whatever context we are in that we're called to love and fight for and move into. Now, when Paul was teaching all this to the Ephesians and he's writing to these people, what you had is a lot of folks who had a past a lot of brokenness in their past, a lot of sin in their past, people who were engaging in all forms of immorality. If you grew up in the city of Ephesus, it was allowed, it was permitted, it was encouraged. So imagine a church being made up of a lot of people who had forms of pain and brokenness and suffering in their past, and now they've been set free by God with these amazing stories. And they were being taught that God does some of His very best work with broken people. Now, I don't know if you're aware, but in Japan, they have some of the most priceless pieces of pottery are actually broken pieces of pottery. If, if you look up on the screen, I have just a couple of pictures of them. You can go, you can Google like broken pieces of art in Japan, and you can read about this stuff where um, you have these broken pieces that have been put back together. And these are the pieces that, that are sold for a, a large amount of money. And here's this one quote this, this one woman had. And what she said, Barbara Bloom. When the Japanese men broke an object, they aggrandized the damage by filing the cracks with gold because they believe when something has suffered damage and has a history, it becomes more beautiful. And doesn't that sound just a little bit like the gospel? Or a lot like the gospel? Do me a favor, if you will. Will you close your eyes and bow your heads? Hey, before you do, I want you to do this, all right? Uh, I'm going I'm to take a risk, but will you just take your hands and put them palms down on your lap? And let me lead you in just a moment of prayer. I want you to close your eyes and bow your heads. And I just want this to represent for a moment. What is it in your life right now that you need to lay down at the feet of Jesus? It could be an action, an unhealthy emotion, a relationship, something in your life, a form of brokenness or pain that you need to lay down uh, at the throne of God. And I want, instead of me praying for this right now, I want you to ask God, to take it from you, lay it before Him. Just talk to God about it for a moment.
you will, turn your palms over, palms up. And I want you to pray to God, just talk to God just for a moment about dispensing a gift in your life, speaking a word into your life. Just open your hands and receive from the Lord. If, if there's any time we lay something down, there's a void and we need God to fill it with Himself. Talk to God about that right now and just receive from the Lord in this moment. And God, my prayer for every person in this room and for the mission and life of this church is that the same God who was able to lift Jesus out of a grave will do the same for them. To fill them with power through Your Holy Spirit for the greater mission that You have given us in this world. Bring the dead to life and set this church on fire for Your glory. I pray in the name of Jesus.